welcome to Doing Diversity in Writing, the podcast where we, as writers, explore the do's and don'ts of writing inclusively, whether that be in terms of race, gender, ethnicity, class, sexuality, ability, and so on. Why are we here? To bring more depth and breadth to the characters in our fiction and represent them in the best way possible. My name is Bethany Ann Tucker, and with me is my co-host, Marielle S. Smith. Let's get started. Bethany, how are you this week? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Um, I'm getting used to waking up with hummingbirds in my window, so that's nice. Oh, that sounds very nice. We have this big bush of flowers. They're kind of pink and white. I'm not sure if it's like two bushes or three bushes. I haven't gotten in there to figure out yet, but it's it's beautiful. And the hummingbirds and the the butterflies get out there and I've actually seen them competing for the same flower I never thought a hummingbird and a butterfly would actually get into it but they did so that was interesting you learn something new every day you do you really do how are you I'm good still working my ass off to get all my books finished before it's Christmas time but I'm getting there slowly slowly or not so slowly, slowly, but I'm trying to take it slowly, slowly. Every time someone says they're working their ass off, I want to tease them about leaving it behind. Like it just falls off in the road while they're running so fast. I, I do. There is this Dutch expression and my mom uses it all the time. It's for, for forgetful people. And we say, if my ass wasn't attached, like I would ah. lose that too. Yeah. In California, I grew up with the term, if my head wasn't attached to my shoulders, I'd leave it behind. Yeah, so the Dutch version uh, is about your ass. Yeah. Um, so, so since this is our first episode, um, I think fifth, we're going to keep laying the foundation. Episodes. The fifth The fifth episode. What did I say? The first? first. Uh, it's my, 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 anyway, leaving it. It's the fifth, everyone. I know it's yeah. the fifth. Yes. We're going to keep laying the foundations, I think, that we talked about in the introduction in our previous episodes. Um, and today we're talking about representation, how it actually works. Because yes, people talk are. about it, but what does it really mean? How does it function? Yeah. What does so, it do? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so before we start, um, I feel that we really have to give recognition to somebody. Um, I've never met this person but you have, Marielle. Um, I'm not going to try to say her name because I keep forgetting how to say her last name and I don't want to say it wrong, but her first name is Rosemary and she was your professor, right? Yes, she's the professor who got me into this topic. So her name is Rosemary Buikema in Dutch, but we can call her Rosemary. Um, she was the first teacher I had on representation and she was the one who got me really excited about the topic. When I was teaching undergraduate students at our university, which is the University of Utrecht, um, we always used this chapter that she wrote for our handbook for teaching gender studies to teach representation to our students. So to this day, I really love hearing her talk about it because there's always something new in what she says. I'm always learning something. Do you know those teachers who just, you know, whenever, every time they show up, uh, they just repeat the same talk over and over again throughout their careers? I mean, I've never stuck around long enough, but yes, I, I know what you're talking about. And I usually tune out real quick. 
Yes, well, so Professor Bergma, she always keeps in touch with the time. She is not like one of those teachers. Like, she can be talking about some classic literary examples like Bluebeard, and then suddenly she's talking about how that links to Mad Men um, when that was showing, uh, which, like, you just see it, just looking at the students, you see how that helps them in understanding the relevance of what she was talking about. Just her jumping from something that's like classic and part of the canon to something that she sees now like on Netflix or um, or what's just showing on the television. Um, and this is something I always appreciate in teachers, right? That they're able to teach about something that's rather complex in a way that makes it really accessible and contemporary and now. So, so yes. Um, so I really owe Professor Baikuma for all that she's taught me. Um, and also for her pushing me to start teaching about representation myself. Because when I was um, like coordinating undergraduate courses, we always invited her to come in as a guest speaker on the topic. And, you know, there was this one day that we had a scheduled class, a class and she was like, why don't you just teach this class yourself? Like you've heard it so often. Um, so that's how I ended up teaching not just her what was usually her guest lecture, but that's also how I ended up teaching entire courses. Like once I've done that one guest lecture, I just, you know. Um, it's a slippery slope. You do one little thing you're scared of and suddenly you're jumping in a, in a you know, a big ocean. Yes, but, and it made me, uh, especially since uh, Professor Baukema became, like she got different jobs as well. Like she's the, the director of the graduate gender program so her time was becoming increasingly limited yeah so I became the person like the representation person so this is when other departments as well sort of like you know tap me on the shoulder and like we have this course on cultural representation how about you teach it for us so suddenly I was teaching this in other departments as well uh, just wow. because I became the sort of person who knew about this um so she was a really big influence on your career. Yes. Yes, she was. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that. So how does she explain representation? Because you were so excited to explain it to me when we started talking about how we were going to do this episode. What is it? And according to her, how does it function? Okay. So, yeah. And this is, this, I, uh, this is me in my full nerd mode, right? Like this really fires me up. Okay. So this is from the chapter that she wrote for the handbook that I've mentioned, which is called doing gender media art and culture. So she says that in, in, in case anyone owns the book happens to own the book in my version of the book it's on page 72. Um, she says, the concept of representation is taken to refer to the act of making present what is absent in reality or in language and culture. Okay. The concept of representation is taken to refer to the act of making present what is absent in reality in, or in language and culture. Yes. Okay. So she's saying that this is representation. What we do when we bring something into the room. So I'm like making this hand motion of bringing something in, so yeah. to speak, that was not there before. Yes, that's exactly what it means. And this is why representation matters because it's about who we make visible and who are rendered invisible because of it. Which is why we want to encourage writers to make that decision 
of who they are making visible more consciously, like be really aware of who you're making visible. Absolutely, yes. So another vital aspect of representation that Professor Baukuma taught me about, uh, and we already briefly discussed this in, in, in uh, episode three, I think, is that in the act of making present what is absent, you always make more present than what's actually there. Okay, I, I remember this. So to sum up, um, just in case someone missed episode three, is that all right? Yeah, yeah, please do. Okay, so in episode three, we briefly touched upon the idea that when we're used to seeing things, the same char- type of characters over and over, um, like like a, a, a Watson character, a white, middle-class, straight, male uh, man, I just said male and man, um, it becomes difficult to keep thinking about um, all these characters as representing a homogeneous group of people because you you have a Watson, you have a Holmes, you have a you have a James Bond. You there's a lot of different versions of this identity. Yes. Um, so we can't think of them as all of the same character. They they have names of their own, like Doctor Watson, Mister Holmes. So whenever we read novels about white straight cis has men, we don't necessarily think that these novels represent all white straight cis has men in the world. Unless, of course, we've never read any novels with those kind of characters in it before, in which case it is possible to draw conclusions that everyone is like Dr. Watson or, or Mr. Holmes, and there's only two kinds of people in the world. Yes. So when someone writes a character who doesn't have that kind of omnipresent presence, around their identity um you know in all these different kind of stories we're much more inclined to think that this particular character represents something bigger than themselves to us they represent those who are like them as well because there aren't that many stories available to us telling us again and again and again that this is actually not the case because there are different people all with right. the same kind of characteristics or the same kind of identity markers. Exactly. Yeah. So let me see if I can explain this with a concrete example. Say that I'm writing a trans character, even mm-hmm. though I'm not intending to write a trans character who stands in for every trans person that exists. For a reader who's reading my novel, who has never met or read about another trans person before, this trans character that I've written, this trans character's story, um, is is now all that this reader knows about trans people. Whatever mm-hmm. I wrote, that's all they know. Mm-hmm. And I've made someone present who in the mind of this reader is more than just a character that I wrote. I've now created something new in their world beyond what I intended to do. Yeah. Um, so for this reader, my character now serves as a stand-in for all trans people, no matter what I intended. Yeah, that that it might, right? Like that's... that's uh, um, um... That does happen, right? That happens to when there is a lack of representation. This is how it functions in our, like, this is just what our brain does. It fills in the gaps, basically. Yeah. Right? So the good thing is, is that this view or belief can be amended relatively easily, right? If this reader of yours keeps reading stories about trans people, they will eventually get the message that trans people aren't all the same. They are not just one homogenous group. But when there's very little or no representation or all the representations out there are the same, they repeat the same kind of things, that one character, that one characteriz- characterization 
um, that can be all a reader knows for a very long time. And while there might be more stories about transgender people out there now than there were like 30 or even 10 years ago, it's still only a minor presence, especially compared to stories about those white male cis hetero characters that we could that we keep coming back to. Yeah. We haven't reached the point where like a plumber shows up in a story and he happens to be trans and that's just a thing. Yes, we haven't, unfortunately. Yeah. But we will get there. We will. So that's why when we write characters with so-called non-normative identity markers like bisexual or polyamorous or members of a First Nation here in North America, the representation, the voice, so to speak, of that character is suddenly much bigger than, say, the voice of one white male character. Yes, I, I kind of want to describe it as, um, okay, picture this, okay? We have a room, and all the white, male, straight, middle-class, cis-hetero characters written in history, all of them, they are in that room, okay? Okay, I'm assuming we're talking about written in the history of the English language. Yes. Okay. So this is going to be a full room right yeah because yeah because there are a lot of characters in literature uh in the anglo-saxon uh, in, in anglo-saxon literature if you want to you know define it like that um that fit that description so when another male straight middle class cis hetero character opens his mouth to tell his story we don't necessarily hear him over the crowd he's just another voice among so many other voices in that room He's an individual amongst a ton of other individuals. Yes. But when we put all the trans characters written in history in that same room, or all First Nations characters or all Muslim characters, their voice will bounce off the walls. There's going to be a huge echo because there's a huge void. There's not going to be that many characters in the room. So in speaking up, their voice becomes so amplified, it's hard to not hear it as if they are speaking for more than just themselves. I hope that analogy makes sense. I think it does. And it's it's not really our fault as readers or even writers that we hear voices like that. It's it's because that there aren't enough or the balance hasn't hasn't hit um, yeah. in fiction or or even in daily life. Um, who have the people who have these identity markers to just instinctively know, oh, this is the this is the one person who has this identity, thinks and feels. Like the readers like meets this character and is like, okay, this is the one person. This is how they think and feel. And the reader doesn't just know, I cannot assume that everyone with this identity feels the same way or lives the same way. Like, yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Like there's this tremendous diversity within each and every community. But we haven't been reading enough about that yet because there, there are by far not enough stories about members of these communities out there. Exactly. So if in the U.S. media, I'm going to reference a story we talked about in a previous episode, that Iranian-American writer, if he wrote his yes. story about Iranian-Americans, he wouldn't be facing the same type of criticism if there were lots of stories about Iranian-Americans and people weren't feeling like he was talking for all of them in the Iranian American community, exactly. which, which leaves him and everyone who's writing uh, with a big responsibility as writers. Yeah. Yeah. Any storyteller really. Yeah. So eventually, and this has always been my hope for the future, 
will become so familiar with this diversity within diversity that will stop thinking, right, so this Black female character in this novel must be speaking for all Black women out there. Because by then, and, and like this is the dream, right? There are so many books by and about Black women, and it has become absolutely normal to read novels by and about those we don't identify with, that we know they're not one and the same. We will know it in our bones. Like we know that when we read about some white straight cis guy, he is not every white straight cis guy out there. That's just something that we know. Yeah. And this is why I think we all need to be writing to the extent that we're able to do so with sensitivity and an informed perspective and with respect. And I'm going to just insert something here. I'm not saying that everyone needs to go out and try to write the story of someone being trans. I'm saying you you include characters who are trans. Who like, happen to be. Yeah, it's not that you're trying to tell their story about being trans, that you're including yeah. characters who are trans so that they're not invisible. Yeah, which is, you know, why we started this podcast. <laughs> but but you're right. I love that you bring this up because we're not saying that we need to we need to be telling other people's stories. Yeah. What we're trying to say is that when we are writing our particular stories, we can add characters, diverse characters to these stories who just happen to be different, diverse. Yeah, it's like walking down the street. You meet all kinds of people doing all kinds yeah. of jobs. Our writing should be the same. Yes. So, 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 so this is the act of representation. This is going back to what your professor said. This is about making present what is absent. The act of representation, yeah. making more present um, than is here. So that's what we need to understand about representation. Yes, that's what representation is and what it does. So how about we move on to how it actually works? Like, I mean, in practical terms. You want to try to handle that in just one half podcast episode? <laughs> yes, let's I, do it. I can try. <laughs> no. I can try. Um, we did cover some of this in episode two, I think, where you brought up about the two levels or steps in representation, that it's not just about quantity, but also perhaps, perhaps more importantly about quality. Yes, that was episode two. Um, and what we discussed there was, let me, yeah, what we discussed there was that the issue we're addressing through the podcast is twofold. First, there is a general lack of representation in that there aren't enough representations of certain people. And then there is also a lack of good representations about these people. Yeah. So it's not just the case that certain groups of people are culturally absent or not as present as other groups, there's also the fact that those few representations of them that we have that are out there, they tend to be stereotypical and thus potentially harmful. And this is the different differentiation that is necessary to grasp because it's one thing to include certain characters in their story, but it's another to repeat problematic or harmful stereotypes in our attempts. Yes, and this is why inclusion, right? The act of including, that's only the first step. It's step one. Who are we adding to our work? 
Step two would be making sure you're not repeating or even creating awful stereotypes. So that would be the, okay, how are we adding these people to these characters to our work? But both steps or levels, um, they're both crucial and need to be taken into account when we're doing this work. Okay. So let's unpack this and make it more practical, shall we? Yes, let's do that. Okay. I promise I can do it. (laughs) You can. I believe in you. So from what I've got, when we look at diversity on the first level, that of quantity, it's all about asking yourself a relatively simple question. Who is present within my work? Who's there? Mm -hmm. Like you can tally it up on a sheet with check marks. Yes. So when you look at your work, including your own, you can ask yourself, where are the women in this work? Where are the ethnic minorities, the sexual minorities, the religious minorities? And remember, because people are listening all around the world, for your area, for your language, for the area you're writing in. Um, so does the work include any disabled characters? How about mental health, which economic classes are present, which aren't? Yes. So, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually glad that you said like, like, it looks like a simple question, right? But there's actually more to the quantity question than just asking, where are these characters? Of course there is. (laughs) That's just how it works. Yeah, it, but it is complex. It's 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 uh it's I, I love making things simple, but without denying the fact that it's actually kind of complex. So, but what I mean is that you know once we've asked ourselves, um, okay, have I included any of these characters, and or have I included any of those characters? We can add a little more complexity to that question by um by looking just a little bit further. So let's say like you've established just like taking your example, you've established that you have included a trans character, right? Okay. Great. The next step actually within this first step is asking, okay, so I've included this trans character. How many of these characters are present within the work? Is it just the one character or are multiple trans characters present? And is that trans character that you've included Is it the only diverse character that you've included or are there multiple diverse characters in your story? If yes, have you included one character per minority group or does the work contain multiple characters belonging to the same community? Yeah. Um, And and this makes a lot of sense and it will be constrained by the story you're telling the region, et cetera, time period. Yeah. So um, don't, don't go out there and like add a hundred characters to your book just for representation. <laughs> no, don't shoehorn in anything that doesn't belong. Yeah. In your but, world. Yeah. Yeah. But hopefully this makes sense. Like you're taking establishment, you're being very conscious of what you're doing. Basically the question we need to ask ourselves, if we want to make a real effort, is it enough to stake in a single homosexual character or someone belonging to an ethnic minority? Exactly. That's the kind of question that we need to ask ourselves. Like, are we doing our bit to change the world by adding one black woman to our very white cast or like um, one Muslim family to our otherwise Christian or secular world that we've just built? So I would, I would usually go with no, no, it's not enough. And no, it's not doing our bit. It it is doing a bit. But again, if we are serious about making a true effort, it's not enough. Again, measure this against the story that you're telling where you're telling it and when because you want to you want to stay realistic yeah yeah like let's say um your novel is set in a town like or a part of town that's very white right um 
if you add numerous black Asian or Hispanic characters to your story, that doesn't necessarily work. And the same goes for forcing tons of women into a story set in an old boys boarding school. The setting that you've chosen doesn't necessarily ask for these, these other kind of characters. You can still do representation in an old boys boarding school, though. You could do like um, someone could be autistic. Someone could be really good at music. Someone could have a single mother. Like there's there's other ways to still create a very realistic world. And that is the same for that very white part of town. Right. Represent like when we say diversity, a lot of people will keep thinking about race and gender. But there is much more to diversity, right? You can still, like, even in a what looks like a very homogenous white part of town, people will have different um, educational backgrounds. They will have different classes. They will have different kind of hobbies. They will have different backgrounds. And a background can even be um, somebody can come from a broken family while somebody else is not. Even that is adding diversity. They will have different jobs. They will have different lived experiences. Yes, they will exactly. have lived through different traumas. And like you said, like they could have autism, like they, they can have other disabilities. There is there are so many ways of adding diversity beyond the most obvious ones like race and gender. Yeah, like when we use that term diversity, that is not all we're talking about. <laughs> no, no, you have to take it as broadly. It's, it's a very broad concept, but I think we're so used when we talk about like also in the media, when we talk about diversity, mm-hmm. it is often race, gender, sexuality, yeah, um, and 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 like ethnicity. But that's kind of, but it's so much broader, and you can do, and, and that's also why we keep saying you are already writing diverse characters. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, making sure that you're writing your 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 story without becoming fantastical unless you are actually writing fantasy um that that's a really good step and um just just keeping it real enough that you're just not erasing like we just said in episode four last week you're not erasing actual pain in people's history um just by adding characters in who wouldn't actually be there to make it more equitable isn't necessarily fixing the problem because it's sometimes when people do this you're erasing something that happened yeah to do just just give a little bit of a tangible example to to make it more tangible i'm just thinking of like let's say you you write uh, a romance right Uh, Mm -hmm. a historical romance it's set in victorian england and you want to make the story more equitable so you just add um maybe a few black characters to your story, or perhaps you let your main character's love interest be of the same sex without that being a problem in the story. You are going to have to write an alternative universe for that to happen. (laughs) Yeah, that only makes sense if the entire story is set in an alternative world, in, 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 in a fantastical setting. If you're trying, if the rest of the story stays true to the time it's set in, that actually does or potentially erases, you know, actual pain um, and, and, and a, a very painful history. But we actually have an example of this being done well. Yes, we do. And you like harped on me forever to watch this. And I was slow. I'm sorry. I was slow to watch it. 
But hey, since I you know. were so excited, you haven't even finished it. I'm, I moved. Okay, I moved That's across true. the country. Well, if you had just watched it when I told you to start watching it, you would have been fine. I'm sorry, but anyway, I feel like we stumbled yeah. around and we started talking about Victorian England. So let's just use yes. this example because I think it really fits. And I didn't yes. even have to say the name. Your face lit up. You knew what I was talking about. I knew, yeah, yeah. Because uh, so for those uh, for those who are like, what the hell are they talking about? We're talking about Bridgerton, and that was quite a hit recently. And so for those who are not in the know, which is perfectly fine. Um, it's uh, Richardson is a rather recent Netflix series and it became like popular almost instantly like overnight on my Facebook people were like binging it and sharing and I was like what is this um, so yeah so I usually don't like this is kind of my personality I think when something is like super popular I stay away <laughs> that's totally just me did. that's just me going yeah yeah no so like like uh if if a, if a if a novel is very popular and everybody's reading and everybody's telling me to read it it might take me 10 years before i pick it up if, i might read it eventually if it's a genre that i'm interested in but initially i'll be like yeah no i don't know what that is i don't know what trauma that came from but that's how i function so the same kind of happened about bridgerton but then i saw a trailer and in the trailer, I saw that like the trailer showed how diversely mixed the cast of characters was. Like there were so many black characters in positions that they weren't in in actual like Victorian England. And that really intrigued me. So I'll admit right away. So Bridgerton is based on a series of books and I have not read the books. Uh, and so I have no idea how the characters were represented in the original books. I don't know whether there's any diversity in the actual books, right? So but you're in the just talking about the TV series then. Yes, we're just talking about the Netflix series. And in the Netflix series, especially when it comes to race, um, there's a like there is a huge mix of characters. So we have a black duke. We have tons of black gentlemen and gentlewomen. The queen is black. The servants are both black and white, and they serve both the black and white aristocracy, right? I couldn't believe my eyes. And this is why I wanted to watch. Like when I saw the trailer, I was like, I need to watch this just to see what's happening. But I absolutely love that diverse representation. Uh, and this is why I told you, because we were already working on this podcast. So I was like, we were preparing the podcast. I was like, you need to watch this. <laughs> and I didn't watch it ASAP, but I did watch most of the first season. One episode really broke my heart right before I started buying a house. And I haven't managed to get back to it. Or well, actually me and my partners haven't all felt up to watching that intense drama and emotion at the same time. We will. We talked about it like yesterday. We have promised each other we will finish it. I kind of want to ask. I kind of want to ask which episode that was, but I don't want to do any spoilers here. It would be like, a spoiler. I know we completely spoiled Pocahontas in the last episode, but then I'm like, that was 1995. I didn't feel guilty about that. Yeah, but this is like very new, so I don't want to spoil. But you're right; it is very intense, and that fits the genre. Like it's historical, fantastic, high drama. Like, high yeah, drama. It's, high, it's high drama. Um, 
and it is a romance story right but it's a very uh, au universe very alternative universe yes very much so so in a way what bridgerton does it seems to totally rewrite history and you know like bethany just said um i think you were the one who brought it up this could actually this could lead to actual erasure right this could lead to an erasure of painful history that shouldn't be forgotten because you know it is through remembering painful histories that we learn right yeah um so bridgerton is an alternative universe right it is a fantastical setting like it's 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 a separate world it's 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 not it's not our world um as in it is it isn't based on any actual historical events um at least not and again i'll stress this at least not in the netflix series yeah i don't know what's happening in the books um but yeah obviously that gives the creator lots of freedom to do whatever the fuck they want because it is a fantasy setting yeah so bridgerton does show what life could be like if it weren't for white supremacy um but while doing that it does honor a very painful past it does acknowledge that this that white supremacy used to be what what was the norm in this world as well and it seems that at least the king and queen in the Bridgerton series are very loosely based on an actual king and queen. I went down the rabbit hole of researching this. Uh, you know, does. <laughs> historical research, that's me. Um, there isn't an English queen that is, I say suspected, but after a couple hours of research, I'm pretty sure it's for reals. She is believed to be of African ancestry, not completely, just partially. Um, her name was Queen Charlotte, and she was the consort of King George III, who was actually yeah. king for Americans during the American Revolution. King George um, or King Charles? Uh, king Charles, sorry. Um, so I believe he was the king during the American Revolution. I feel like double-checking myself on that. Don't ask me, because I love my history, but not as much as you. Yeah, I have to peg things. Um, Anyway, Bridgerton (laughs) is fantastical, just to be clear, in terms of being an alternative historical setting. But my many, like many historical settings, it borrows. And I just found it absolutely fascinating that there was any African ancestry in the British monarchy, which actually came through the Spanish monarchy and I believe the Moors because the Moors married into the Spanish monarchy, which makes sense considering the history of Spain. Yeah. So again, Bridgerton is fantastical, but it's borrowing. And even inside Bridgerton, there are references and I don't really want to spoil the story, but they reference a time before equality existed and it's still memorable and important to characters and it still plays a part in the story. Yeah. I, I, and I love that, right? Like for me, when I was watching it, I was like, okay, so what, how are they going to deal with it? Because we've talked about erasure, right? Yeah. So when I was, when I was watching it, we were already discussing this. So I was, I was looking at it through that critical lens. Like what, how are they going to deal with this? So I loved, and and I, I promise this doesn't actually spoil anything, but what I love is that there's, there's just like this really brief moment we get this glimpse of what life was like before the king fell in love with the black woman, right? Uh, and decided to kind of uplift, you know, the black population to the same standards 
right? Mm-hmm. Uh, as the white population. And, and we see this when two characters, not mentioning any names, discuss just how recent it was that black people were allowed a place amongst the aristocracy, right? And how some still fear it means that that actual recentness means that it could be taken away again as well by that very same king who had granted them this equality in the first place. Yeah. So again, Richardson shows us an alternate possibility while acknowledging the colonial history. Basically, it gives us the best of both. We get to see Black people as the social equals of white people. And Richardson actually references other minorities that don't always show up in media as well. Um, So I'm excited for season two. Yes. Um, But but we get to see Black people as social equals and race not really being an issue of what society actually colorblind. I'm weird with that word, but people aren't really thinking about it when they're meeting each other. Um, And it's such a necessary image to be imprinted in our brains. We get a reminder of how it was before and how precarious equality is. Um, something that, you know, most of us have had to grapple over the last few decades, how precarious equality can be. Yeah. And especially having a white ruler in the series that made it happen in the first place, it's definitely on people's minds. Um for those characters that remember, younger people don't seem to remember as much because it's not their lived experience. Um, so it, it can be difficult for those older characters to feel secure, which is something we also see in real life outside of you know media and film and Bridgerton. Yeah, yeah. I I think you know when I think about this, um, Black Panther comes to mind. Yes, um, like that too. It's it's such a good example. In, in showing us what could have been if white people had kept their hands of the African continent. Um, of course, like it's the Marvel universe. So this is also fantasy sci-fi, right? Uh, and I'm not saying that the technology present in Wakanda is realistic. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but what I am saying is that the, the, the film really shows African people, you know, African people who have not been colonized. Mm-hmm. It shows them as extremely inventive, as quick, witty, caring, and also as absolutely diverse. Like there are so many, like so many communities within Wakanda. And, and they're they all not perfect. Have, they're interesting. They're interesting, yes. And they, they have different allegiances, right? And they are different and they have different, it's it's very realistic. Some of them are vegetarian. Some of them fight with their sisters. Some of them have marital issues. Right? Like, it's almost like they're people. It's exactly like they're people. Yes. So this is, I think, yeah. It'd be really hard to actually write real people. Like, you can write characters, but to write real people is another level of skill. Yeah. Sorry. But, but that's my, but my point is like, like films like, like Black Panther and, and it's showing that that is great, even though it is like, it is um, a fantasy setting, right? Yeah. And like I said, the technology, yeah, like I don't even know if, what is it, Iranian? What's it? What's it? What's it? What's... Whatever Captain American's shield is made out of. That I feel stuff, like a right? bad Marvel fan right now. Yeah. So I'm not sure whether that actually exists or a version of that exists, but that's no, not doesn't. my, yeah. So that's not my point. The point is that it does show what could have been, it shows African people like in, in in the best possible light yeah so to to sum up inclusion matters 
Yes. But representation just for the sake of inclusion isn't really the answer. If certain characters don't fit your narrative, it is okay to let them be, to not try to include them. Besides, we and we will say this again because we've used a yes. lot of race and gender yeah. examples. Yeah. That's not the only diversity that exists. There's a lot of other ways to be diverse. Like if you're writing in an Oregon town in 1850, there's probably some First Nation people, maybe. Everyone else is pretty much white. Yeah. But they can be gay or asexual or, or even or secretly that... not Christian. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Even that. And they can also be... Um non-binary even you did have right like that that's not something even though we now have terminology for it doesn't happen that uh non-binary people didn't exist the same for trans people actually the wild west was good for people who didn't want to fit gender stereotypes because they'd go out west change their clothes and live a different life that just makes me think of calamity jane the Oh, I just yeah. know that I don't I don't know if that's a real story, but that's like my grandmother used to have this huge set of looky look. Uh, what's it called? Looky look. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, OK, that might be just that might just be uh, uh, it's a comic. So maybe that's just the Dutch, the Dutch name for the comic series. It was a cowboy anyway. Um, so Calamity Jane was one of the was one of the the characters, and she was like uh, uh, another cowboy, and and uh, um, so yeah, it, it gave that space, right? I do know uh, about Calamity Jane, but she's appeared in a lot of different things. At this point, it's a legend. Well, so I, I'm assuming that particular comic book spoke to the legend. Yeah, probably. But don't ask me. It might have been a Dutch production. I have no idea. Like, I don't know how that would translate. But when you say that, that's what I'm thinking about, right? It gave the freedom um, to, to change, be, yeah, to, to change pass and, whatever they wanted to do. Yeah. So that's also diversity. Yeah. Right. And I love what you said about the, 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 um, especially when you're like in, in one of those towns and everybody's a Christian and you have doubts about your, your beliefs, for example. Uh, yeah. Or you believe something else, right? That's that that's diversity as well. That brings with it its uh, its particular tensions. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's a lot yeah. of ways to to do this. Don't don't feel like you just have to do it in one way. And yeah. and you may, as a writer, find that you're better at doing to including some things. Like your own lived experience may help you write certain things more than others. And lean into those strengths. Yeah. Um. So. Where were we? Because I went off on a tangent thinking about that Oregon town. And now I like have stories running through my head. <laughs> All those wild th- Western books I read as a kid. I think I think that the, the main point we're trying to make is that um, just because you're writing a setting in which it doesn't make sense to include like a cast of Black or Asian or Hispanic characters, um, that doesn't mean you're getting off, like you're getting off the hook, right? Like you can still write the more diverse characters, but just think of diversity in a broader sense. Like it's also ability and disability. Yep. Physically, physically and mentally. It's, it's, it's class, it's sexuality, it's. This actually leads to more interesting books. Yes. Really does lead to more interesting books. Yeah. So speaking of that, I don't know about you, but what I'm really curious to see um, is whether in the next um, season of Bridgerton, whether they're going to play around with any of those other identity markers. Like, 
like homosexuality is present a little bit in the first season, but that's clearly still taboo in the story. And of course, as far as gender goes, I mean, Bridgerton society is still very much a patriarchal society. It It, it is. And they've yeah. really set it up. So yeah, I'm kind of on the edge of my seat too. Even though I haven't finished season one, I'm still on the edge of my seat for season two. Yeah, I'm just really, I, I really have my hopes up after the first season. So I'm really curious um, what they're going to do next. So getting back to topic, because we're totally fangirling here. <laughs> yes. Um, so we have that first step, which is all about who we are including in our work, right? But then there is that second step where we have to ask ourselves, how are we including certain characters? Step one is about, you know, are we representing characters in the first place, right? Or aren't we? And then step two is where we reflect on how we are representing them. Okay. So let's keep going back to the same example I've been using. Let's say that I've established that I've included a trans character in my work. What do I do then? How do I move on from the question of quantity to that of quality? Okay. So once you've asked yourself, like how many of these characters are present and how many of those characters are present, this is when we start asking questions about the roles that they get to play within a work. So how many of these diverse characters that are included actually get to play a major role? That is, have an actual function within our plots. How many are secondary or even less important characters? How much room do these characters get or how much room do we give them to grow as characters in their own right? Okay, so this is reminding me of what we discussed in episode three, when we talked about the difference between writing diverse characters and main or even secondary characters, characters who actually get to influence the plot and have fleshed out personalities, or or if they're really minor characters, like the difference between writing those kind of characters. Yeah, and this is part of the quality discussion, right? What kind of role do they get to play and how much space they're allowed to take up within a story? So once you figure that one out, like, are they all minor characters? Do they actually do something in the story or not, right? Then it's time to look very close at how you are representing them beyond the kind of roles that they're allowed to fulfill. Yeah, right. Because that we're writing diverse diverse characters that they're present doesn't automatically mean that we're doing a brilliant job portraying them. It doesn't. So it's one thing to take them from the periphery of the plot, you know, and create more um, or give them a bigger role in stories. That's like one thing we can do, mm-hmm. but that's not all there is to the quality discussion, right? Because each society comes with its own set of stereotypes for those who are considered like, quote unquote, other. And it's really difficult to counter or break down these different types and provide better alternatives. So most of these types, as you call them, are just ingrained in our collected consciousness or subconscious. Is that what you're referring to? Yes. So no matter how dedicated we are to becoming more diverse in our writing, we will always have to consider how we are describing these characters, whether we are writing them as minor characters, as main characters, as secondary characters. The how is so important, right? What do they look like? How are they behaving? What background have we given them? What is their educational level and occupation? occupation? Like, what are their personalities like? What are their relationships with other people like? So on and so forth. 
All right. So again, I keep harping on this. Let's bring in some concrete examples to go with the second step. Okay. Let's see. Um, okay. Very, very obvious example. Or for me, a very obvious example. So let's say the women in our stories cry all the time, right? While the men remain completely rational, even under the most difficult circumstances. Hey, you can be rational right? and crying at the same time. Just saying. I say that. <laughs> Say that to my clients. Oops. I actually do say that to my clients. Um, or another example, male homosexual characters that are just extremely flamboyant. And, you know, at the same time, all the lesbians in the same work are like completely super tough, right? Or like super butchy. Or when you have black and all Mexican male characters who all have like criminal and violent tendencies and who need to be put in their place by this white hero. Yes, right? We could argue, if we include characters like this, we could definitely argue that we are indeed representing diverse characters. I mean, you know, when we just look at the first step, there are women, there are gay characters, there are lesbians, there are some Black and Hispanic characters. We are representing diverse characters. If you're only checking boxes, you've managed to do it. Um, yes. But really, you reinforcing already existing stereotypes that in this case yeah. could be damaging, which um, which doesn't actually help. You might as well no. not do it. Yeah. Um, so that's why it's I'd important. rather people not do it. Yeah. Because it's very counterproductive. Yeah. And, and I'm just going to insert, it's not to say that you can never write a minority character with a criminal background or a woman that cries. It's about balance. It's about actual reality because not every woman in your life cries. Not every uh, gay person in your life is flamboyant. I almost guarantee you that most of you have met a gay man and had no idea he was gay. Yeah. Um, so representation is not only about who we make present, it's about how we make them present and being conscious of it, doing it. So representation, doing it, means yeah. we have to think through both steps very intentionally. Yes, if you want to do it right, both steps are important. So to get back to the example of Bridgerton, and I, I, I really am trying to minimize any spoilers. Um, the reason I was so thrilled about this series is not just because there are tons of Black people in there, right? Because Black people are present in lots of films and series. But I was thrilled because these are main characters, some of whom have very high statuses within the story. And they aren't fetishized, flat, stereotypical characters. Sure, the Duke, he's objectified as a desirable male. But so are some of the other male characters. And as far as I could tell, this wasn't about his blackness per se. This for me was such a welcome change. Like not only were they present, but they were also represented in such a way that defies so many persisting stereotypical representation and tropes about black people. Yeah. And it also like goes over some of those other questions. Like what role are they allowed to play within our plots? Do you mean how are they ever the main character or are they always the funny sidekick and Bridgerton just completely messes with that. Like everybody, every kind of person gets to play every kind of role. Yes. And I think this is very important as well. When you ask the quality question, so this in the second step, you should also ask yourself what identity markers your protagonists have versus your villains or versus your funny sidekicks, right? 
who tends to be your mentor figure? We often see the mentor figure as a um, white, middle or upper class, older male. And yes, for example, you know, mentor figure, one of the most uh, known mentor figures in fiction would be Professor Dumbledore. Of yeah. course, right? J.K. Rowling said that Dumbledore is gay, but do we know he is gay in the story? Not necessarily. That is not very obvious. Like some people say they see it. I never really saw it. So for me, he really fell into that same kind of category. Uh, um, this is something so, Procahannes actually did well, is the mentor figure was a woman, an yes, older woman. E- even though she was a tree. Yes. Yeah, which is, we could say something about that, but but that is, those are important questions. Like, so who is the mentor figure? Same, same, like if your work includes dead bodies, whose dead bodies are those? Like there are tons of tropes about um, the gay person always being the first person to end up dead. Yeah, the barrier right? so, gaze trope. Yeah. So look into that, but also not unimportantly, who's allowed to be happy in the end who isn't like there's a there's the bury the gay trope but there's also um this trope in in lesbian romance in lesbian love stories that they're not allowed to be happy in the end right mm-hmm. they they never end up together there's always some kind of drama or something really traumatizing happens or somebody dies and the gay gets buried so who dies and who lives those are also quality questions those are yeah. step two questions they are about how we're we representing certain recurring characters in our work. Um, if you allow me to get into feminist literary criticism for a moment. A moment. I'm not going to let oh. you go off too far. Okay. So now I'm in it, right? Go for it. Um, so what you see a lot in stories is that even if the protagonist, like the main character, is a woman, it are often male characters who keep the story going. So... These characters are the ones who often come into the story as some sort of external force. They're the ones who cause the plot to move forward. They're the ones who make decisions, who make things happen. And stories with strong female characters are not immune to this. So knowing this, I try to be extra careful in making sure my female protagonists are the ones to make things happen, right? They don't passively wait around for some guy to come in and give the plot a twist. This is something that I am very, very careful of in my own writing because yeah, I know it's a thing. It is. And it's it's not just male writers that'll do this. Women writers will do it too. Non-binary writers will do it too because we kind of like have this in our subconscious. We do. It is part of our collective consciousness, our collective subconsciousness. You know why that is? Because we've all read the same books. Yeah, which is is how it works. Yeah, this is how it works in those books. So this is how story, this is how we know story. So we have to work hard at unlearning these things. Which is why when we're talking about the historical canon, we're going to talk about stuff in the last 200 years or more because it's still what we're being raised on. It's still in the subconscious. So even while it might be changing the moment, we still have to grapple with the history as we're writing. Yes. Yeah, because that is really what story is based on as well. This is this is the stories that we now know, you know, storytelling, how we do plot that is still based on all those stories that have come before us. Exactly. So we do, like you said, we do have to grapple with that. So 
to give an example of that, like the main character of the fantasy novel series that I'm currently revising, she was like two drafts ago, she was actually very passive. And it took a friend, someone that I know, because we started studied feminist literary criticism, criticism together. I needed a friend to point that out to me. Yeah. Yeah. And Sometimes, that was, yeah, yeah. that was really embarrassing. Like, you know, you, you can know all the stuff. You can be teaching the stuff, which I was at the time, and you can still get it wrong. You can still repeat the same pattern. So it's all about being conscious and aware of those patterns and then trying to unlearn them and unpack them as you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And again, like trying to unpack it and remain realistic. Like I, in my fantasy novel, I do have older male mentor figures because they fit the story they fit where it's uh-huh. at I just make sure that um my female characters make their own decisions and, and there's yeah. actually a female care who doesn't make her own decisions and that's her problem that's her character flaw that she needs to work on but it's done intentionally yeah because of the world that I've set it in this is the way it's going to be and I love those characters like my older mental male, male mentor mentor figure I adore him and he also has a lot of respect for the women in his life. So it's a balance. It's not that you need to erase characters that have been in storytelling before. No. Be conscious of how you're using them. Yeah. Like I also have a mentor figure, but in the first in the first few drafts, this was a straight, white, male, cis-hetero person. So at one one draft, I decided, no, I'm turning her into like she's still older right? Because mentorship comes with wisdom uh, and that comes with the years. Um, but I turned her into a very happily married lesbian woman. Awesome. Just to just to tackle a few tropes all at once. Because your, your setting actually allowed for that. My setting allowed for that. Yeah. 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 Mine did That's, not. <laughs> and that is very important as well, because I'm writing in a, in a very, yeah, because my setting allowed for that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I'm guessing this just shows you how vigilant you need to be, how conscious you need to be. If you want to get it right, um, and when none of us are all going to get it right, we're just like failing forward is how I like to think about it. Yeah. Um, Let's keep repeating that. Yeah. If you're falling, you're still moving forward as long as you're falling <laughs> towards your feet. Uh, just, just don't fall backwards. Um, just fall flat on your face once in a while and then just scramble up and just try again. Dust You're still in the position off. to keep crawling forward. We, yeah. We've all done that. Been there, done it. My hand is in yeah. the air. Um, and we have all this canon behind this, all this literature. The majority of the stories we know have worked the same way for ages. And if you want to get into like feminist literature, you a lot of it is either very new or you have to dig backwards in time to find it. Um, yeah. So it's really hard not to repeat it. And and not all historical literature needs to be thrown out. There's a lot we can learn from it. Yeah. But be aware of what you're learning. Um, the, the same goes yeah. for stereotypes, cliches. You've got to be conscious of what it's actually saying. And sometimes you need outside calibration. Yeah. And, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. And this is the thing, right? Both awareness and self-awareness is key here. Like know yourself, know what representations are lacking our, and, and or are problematic and know your work. Yeah, and I feel like we might need to take a whole podcast episode about how to know yourself, but that's for another time. And it's yes. okay to make mistakes. It is so okay to make mistakes. Like yeah. 
really, I cannot stress that enough. (laughs) Yeah, but we all make mistakes. The thing is, we just have to stay open to constructive criticism and be willing to acknowledge where you might have gone off track. I was not okay. Like when I got that feedback from that friend that I attended feminist literary criticism classes with, and she said how, like, she basically wrote, knowing you, I am surprised to see how passive aggressive, not even aggressive, your female main character is. Like, I'm quite disappointed. Trust me, I did not like reading that. No, like that really hurt my feeling. But, you know, I could have completely shut down or stay with it, like leaned into that discomfort and just be okay. Yeah, like I had to acknowledge I had gone off track. I was repeating a pattern that I actually wanted to unlearn. So I did. And there's there's various ways to unlearn it. You can change your character. You can say this book is what it is and write a new one. Yes. However it works for you. Remember, you can write a new story. You don't have to be like, well, I'll never get this right. I'm done. Like, go ahead, write a new story, revise. Whatever is the right choice for you. It's about continuing movement forward. Perfectionism is not the answer here. No, absolutely not. No, no. All right. It is a failing forward, yeah. It is a failing forward. It works for playing music. It works for figuring out how to buy a house, all of it. Yeah, anyway. Um, So we, again, because of like this topic, we've created another checklist um, with questions to help you become more aware of your work and how you're doing diversity right now. These are questions we've asked ourselves. These are questions people have asked us that we found very helpful. So again, we've just put them in a written form. um, And... Yeah, I was going to say they basically will help you go through those steps we've discussed in this episode. So it's going to be a very pragmatic checklist. Yes. Just to help you kind of diagnose where you are and where your diverse characters are right now. Yeah. Yeah. So So where will they find it? (laughs) They're going to find it in the show notes, of course, uh, the link. But as always, you will find the checklist on the website. And if you sign up for our newsletter, um, it should be in your inbox already. If not, please check your spam folder. Yes, we might have please ended up there. sign up for the newsletter because that is the easiest way to get everything that we're going to be putting out every week. Yeah, all the extra material as well. And you will also get reminders that a new episode is out as well. All right. So we will talk to you all next week when we'll be discussing some of the most common pitfalls when it comes to doing diversity like we've been talking about. So the next step, basically. Yes, which is another episode of me turning on my super nerd academic mode. I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) So am I. All right. See you next week, everyone. See you next week. Have you reached that sweet place where you've written out your entire story? It's a wonderful feeling. You've worked so hard for this, spent so many long hours at the keyboard or talking to yourself every quarter, then going over it again at the computer. It's been mostly internal work, and it's often been alone. But now, it's time to take it from rough to polished, and for that, outside perspective is essential. Let me help you. As a developmental editor, I, Bethany A. Tucker, will take your hand, sort through your draft, answer your questions, and help you polish it until your work shines. You don't have to do this alone. It doesn't matter if this is your first book or your 10th book. Whether you publish this book already and want to make it better, or you're teetering on the edge, eager to publish for the first time, 
Together, we can take your book to the next level. Contact me via links in the show notes or at theartandscienceofwords at gmail.com to take the next step. Thank you for listening. Music for this show was written and produced by Eric Mills. If you want to join the conversation, fill out our write and read a questionnaires. Both can be found in the show notes and on our website, representationmatters.art. That's dot A-R-T. If you want to be the first to hear when a new episode comes out, sign up to our newsletter. And if you found this helpful, please rate and review on your favorite podcast app to help other writers find us too.